to go back and take down my old uh, letters and journal of Henry Martin that I Xeroxed about a year ago from an ancient book over at Luther Seminary Library and peruse it in search of the question, is anything too hard for God? Did this truth, no, make a difference for Henry Martin in his missionary labors? Let me introduce you to Henry Martin and then look at the scriptures with you. Henry Martin was born 206 years ago in England, 1781. His father was rich, which didn't do him well, all things considered. He turned his back on God, but his father sent him off to uh, Cambridge when he was 16 years old. And within five years, four years I think it was, he had already taken first place in mathematics and one more year he had taken the first prize in Latin composition. He had turned his back on God, I said, and his academic achievement was his God until it evaporated in his hand. He said, I obtained my highest wishes, but was surprised to find that I had grasped at a shadow. Then his father died, and then the people prayed for him, his sister especially. Then a godly minister, Charles Simeon, spoke to him. And then he got a copy of David Brainerd, Life and Diary. And Henry Martin was converted. 1802, he was 21 years old. He resolved to leave his academic career and become a missionary. But first of all, he became the assistant to uh, Charles Simeon there at the Trinity Church in Cambridge and served him for several years and then departed for India, 1805. He was going to be a um, chaplain to the East India Company. That was the easiest way to get there, sort of a tent-making capacity, you might say, because they didn't want missionaries at that time. England didn't in India. But he went. His first day on land in Calcutta, May 16, 1806, he met William Carey. He wanted to meet William Carey. All of us would have wanted to meet William Carey. And, of course, there was trouble. You see, Henry Martin was an Anglican, high churchman. And uh, William Carey was a Baptist like us, although uh, maybe not like us. I'm not sure. At any rate, there was tension over the use of the liturgy in Calcutta. And uh, here's what Carey, bless his heart, wrote about Martin. A young clergyman, a Mr. Martin, is lately arrived who is possessed of a truly missionary spirit. We take sweet counsel together and go to the house of God as friends. And I love that testimony from a Baptist regarding uh, the J.I. Packers and John Stotts of our day. Alongside his chaplain duties, he set himself to translate the New Testament. Now, William Carey had, as most of you know, undertaken to work among Hindu languages, Sanskrit and its, its relatives. So Martin took up Arabic, Persian, and Hindustani, the three great Muslim languages, and set himself to work with his tremendous linguistic skills as a young man. Within two years, by March of 1808, he had not only translated into Hindustani the whole New Testament so idiomatically that to this day it is keyed off of. Secondly, he had translated a commentary on the parables into Hindustani, and he had translated part of the Book of Common Prayer 
within two years. He had been studying Hindustani on the boat on the way over. Then he was assigned to oversee the Persian New Testament. And he began to work and he finished it. And it was not good. And uh, in the process, he had become very sick. He didn't know it, but he had leukemia. He set himself to perfect this New Testament and to get himself well. He said, I'll go to England in order to get well, but I'll kill two birds with one stone. I'll go by land, travel up the Gulf, through Persia, around through Turkey, Constantinople, and home, and I will learn Persian well enough and perfect my New Testament. And he got sick, was dreadfully sick, and he died in Tokat, Asiatic Turkey, when he was 31 years old. Now, there's the overview, but you don't know Henry Martin yet. You don't know Henry Martin until you see the flights and the plunges of his spirit recorded in his letters and journal. And I'm convinced that the reason that Henry Martin's uh, letters and journal and David Brainerd's life and diary and, and Brainerd's book was the most important book for Martin after the Bible. He said that very plainly. The reason these two books are classics in, in missionary inspiration is because of how incredibly real they are. That these two men suffered and struggled with their own imperfections to such a remarkable degree, and it's all laid out there with such remarkable candor that when real people like missionaries read it, they are helped by it, and that's why they're still being used to this day. But there's another reason that we don't know the story. There's a love story. He loved Lydia Grenfell very deeply. When he left, and he left her behind because he said, um, number one, I want to make sure that it's fit place for you out there. And number two, I'm not sure that I'm depending on God enough rather than you. And I want to prove that I'm depending on God. So he went without her. But within two months after he arrived, he wrote his letter of proposal to her and asked her to come. And then he waited 15 months. And that's the way the males were. You make your proposal and you Wait 15 months. And then on October 24, 1807, he got the answer. And here's what he wrote in his journal. An unhappy day. Received at last a letter from Lydia in which she refuses to come because her mother will not consent to it. Grief and disappointment threw my soul into confusion at first. But gradually as my disorder subsided, my eyes were opened and reason resumed its office. I could not but agree with her that it would not be for the glory of God, nor could we expect his blessing if she acted in disobedience to her mother. And then he took up his pen and he wrote to her that afternoon, My dear Lydia, though my heart is bursting with grief and disappointment, I write not to blame you. The rectitude of all your conduct secures you from censure. Alas, my rebellious heart, alas, my rebellious heart, what a tempest agitates me. I knew not that I had made so little progress in a spirit of resignation to the divine will. And then for five years he labored and hoped and dreamed that she would yet come. And thousands, I don't know thousands, hundreds of letters went back and forth between England and uh, India, and my dear Lydia became my dearest Lydia, and she was the last one to whom he wrote on October, on August 28, 1812. And this is the way the letter ended. 
from somewhere in uh, in Persia. Soon we shall have occasion for pen and ink no more, but I trust I shall shortly see thee face to face. Love to all the saints. Believe me to be yours ever, most faithfully and affectionately. H. Martin. It was hard. Hard. But is anything too hard for God? Well, we'll come back in a few minutes after we've looked at the Scripture and see how He dealt with these things. Go with me now to the Bible. The key issue for us this morning is how does the Bible develop this question? Is anything too hard for God? And I want you to go to Genesis with me and we're going to go back a few chapters to chapter 12 for a beginning. A very familiar verse in chapter 12, verse 2 To remind you that God has a redemptive plan that he began a long time ago. It took a decisive turn with the calling of Abraham. And he promised Abraham a great word. Listen to what he wrote in chapter 12, verse 2. I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses you, I will curse. And by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So his redemptive plan is that through Abraham, all the families of the earth, all the nations, tongues, tribes, peoples are going to be reached. Now, the question is, how was that to happen through Abraham? Now, turn with me to Genesis 17 for part of the answer. In Genesis 17, I love that noise of your pages swishing. God made a covenant with Abraham and promised to be God. Look at verse uh, Seven, first of all, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. But now that raises a question for me. Does it not for you? How are all the nations that were promised to be blessed through Abraham back in chapter 12 going to be blessed when the blessing and the benefits of the covenant flow through his descendants? I think part of the answer is given in verse four where it says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, how do you put this together? Here's the way I put it together. I think that the way the blessing of Abraham will come upon all the families and all the nations is by all the nations becoming the children of Abraham. If the blessing flows through his covenant child, the descendant and his descendants, and yet he's to be a blessing to all these other nations out here that are not Israelites. How does that fit together? And the biblical answer is it fits together by all those nations becoming the multitude of nations who have Abraham as their father. Somehow, Abraham is going to become the father of people from all nations. Now, how? How is that going to be? Well, first of all, a negative answer from the text. It is not going to be through the flesh, that is, through the labor and the work of a man. That's the whole point of the Hagar affair. Abraham sees that he has no offspring, right? God has said his offspring is going to be like the stars in the heaven. So what does he do? He sleeps with his wife's maid. Makes sense. Now he's got a child, Ishmael. God can get on with the fulfillment of his promises. Thank you, Abraham. 
That's the po- What's the point of the Hagar affair? The point of the Hagar affair is God will see to it that His promises to build a covenant people never depend on the flesh. Never depend on the powers resident within us by nature. There will always be something more than a mere man at work when a covenant beneficiary is created. Ishmael will not qualify. He's a child of the flesh. Now, why did God wait so long? Why did he wait so long to bring a covenant child, Isaac? Look at chapter 18, verse 11. I think this is the answer, though it doesn't look like one. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. And it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. You know that Sarah had been barren from her earliest years, according to chapter 11, verse 30. But that wasn't problem enough for God. He waited until the time of her childbearing years was past. Now is the time for the covenant child to be born. He's a hundred years old. She was barren and is now beyond childbearing age. Now I will bring forth the covenant child. Why? Why does God do it this way? Well, the lesson is plain. The lesson is when a covenant people is created, it is created by God and not the fleshly efforts of man. That's clearly the lesson that the New Testament draws out of these texts in Romans, and I think it also lies on the face of them when you just ponder them in their Old Testament context. God says in chapter 18, verse 14, At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah shall have a son. All human resources are exhausted. Sarah and Abraham are reduced to laughter at the incredibility of it all. And now is the time for God to create his people. He waits until it is humanly impossible and therefore teaches us that it is not by human effort that the covenant people will be created. Ishmael, he won't do. Ishmael stands as a symbol of two things. The presumption and unbelief of his father. He is a child and a product of what man can do when man, by his ingenuity, undertakes with cleverness and power to do a thing. And believe me, human beings without God, by presumption and unbelief, can do many things. They can build great cities and tall towers into the skies. They can split the atom. They can get to the moon. But they cannot create a people of God. And therefore, God shows Abraham that you can't create the covenant people. Only I can do that. It is a missionary question. Is anything too hard for God? And the answer is no. God can do anything he pleases. And he loves to glorify his freedom and his power by acting where it is humanly impossible. 
How are all the families going to get in on this? We know from Galatians that Jesus was the seed or offspring of Abraham. And we know that by faith we are united to Jesus Christ. There happens a kind of mystical union. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a union and attachment to him. So that Galatians says, if you belong to Christ, you are children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. So now right around this world, in every tongue and tribe and people and nation, the possibility exists that Gentiles may become Jews through attachment to Jesus Christ and become heirs of the promise made to Abraham. And so we ask, is this our own doing? Is this work of redemption by which Christ is provided and we are united to him our work? Is it the result of the flesh? Are we Ishmael's or are we Isaac's? And the New Testament picks up the question from Genesis 18:14 and makes it very clear what the answer to that is in two steps. First, who was the seed of Abraham? Luke chapter 1 verse 31 Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary the same way God came to the barren Sarah. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Mary says, how can this be since I have no husband? And the angel answers, with God, nothing will be impossible. But what about our attachment to Jesus? Okay, The covenant was begun by a miracle with Isaac. Okay, the seed of Isaac was brought into the world, Jesus, by another miracle. But surely my attachment to Jesus, my participation in this line, this covenant line of blessing, that's my work, right? That's owing to me. That depends on my effort and labor. And Jesus picks up this question from Genesis 18, 14 and again says no. Here it is. You remember the story of the rich young man? What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, give away all your money, give it to the poor, and follow me, and you'll have eternal life. And the man says, in effect, I can't. I love it too much. And he walks away. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's hard, note the word, it is hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom. And they are simply flabbergasted because they thought wealth was a sign of blessing. And they said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. And then he picks up this text. But with God, nothing is impossible. So how did you get saved? How did you, or have you, how did you forsake the love of money? and the love of the world, and embrace Christ? How did you stop trusting in self-reliance and start trusting in God? How did that happen in your life? Did you do it? Are you an Ishmael this morning, sitting here in church, producing by the powers of the flesh, and those sources of power resident in you, all the things that Ishmael can produce in religion, praying, Bible reading, singing, and have no covenant life in you at all because there's never been a miracle of rebirth. God has never said, I will come next spring 
And I will bring forth your divine life. Are you an Ishmael or are you an Isaac this morning? Nobody becomes part of the covenant people by the powers resident within a human being by nature. We must be born from above. The wind blows where it wills, and we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Those who are born of the flesh are merely Ishmael flesh. And those who are born of the Spirit are spiritual Isaacs, heirs of the covenant promise. So the answer from beginning to end is God creates a covenant people by His power, not by our power. Now I go back to Henry Martin and try to apply this in closing very briefly. Did it make a difference to Henry Martin, the missionary, that the answer to this question was, no, nothing is too hard for God. It made a great difference in three areas. His struggle with his own sin, his struggle with hard-heartedness among people, and his struggle with dying. Let me just quote some from his text as we close. He was on his way to India on the boat, and he wrote, Why can I not be like Fletcher and Brainerd and those great men of modern times? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Cannot my stupid, stony heart be made to flame with love and zeal? You see what he's doing? He's warring with his soul. And he's warring with the sword of the Spirit. He takes that sword from Genesis 18:14 and says, Is anything too hard for God's soul? And then he slays his sin. It's exactly what Romans 8:13 says. Slay your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know warfare in your life against sin, you are not born of God. The mark of a child of God is not perfection. Just read the lives of the saints. The mark of a child of God is war against sin in your life. Hating it, fighting it, stirring yourself up with every failure to attack it again and kill it again. And then their assurance comes with the warfare. Secondly... He used this truth to fight the battle of hard-hearted people. He preached on the boat on the way to India. He was the chaplain, in fact. And there were people who hated what he said. They sneered. They laughed. They cursed at him. And he had to deal with this. He wrote one time in his journal, I heard that B, he never named anybody, I heard that B generally became, began to swear after divine service at my keeping them so long. I've scarcely seen one more determinately said against all holiness. Yet, even this man may be the first to melt when God puts forth his hand. There it is again. He took his hope. He strengthened his hand. He encouraged his perseverance by saying, even the hardest of hearts might melt if God puts forth his hand. There's my hope. God may put forth his hand. And then finally, he had to die at 31. That's 10 years ago for me. I would have been dead 10 years if I were Henry Martin. And what a mark he left. He had to die and he struggled. And here's what he wrote at the end. 
If I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. Now, where did he learn that? Nothing's too hard for God. Let me paraphrase that for you. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. You are immortal until God's work for you is done. And when it's done, who would want to stay? Let's stand for closing prayer. We revel, Father, we revel in the truth that nothing is too hard for you. Our own sinfulness is not too hard for you to overcome. The hard-heartedness of unbelievers is not too hard that our witness may not break through when you stretch forth your hand. The fear of death is not so great that it can't be overcome by the promise of your grace that we are immortal until your work for us is done. And then we would not want to stay, for it is far better to depart and be with Christ. And I pray that you would fill this people with a longing for you. And those who scoff at this message, Lord, those who sneer, I pray that you would turn their hearts and break them. That you would open the hearts of people to receive the beauty of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. That you would elevate hearts into the presence of the King and cause us to fall on our faces and worship you forever and ever. And send us forth from this building now with strength to enter the world for your glory this week or to carry your message to the ends of the earth. And all the people of God said, Amen.